Do you want to start a thriving real estate career, but don't know where and how to start? Do you want to become a successful realtor or investor, but lack the required knowledge and skills? Gear yourself up with the best and actionable advice here on The Real Estate Rundown. Tune in as Shannon Robnett talks with industry veterans about all kinds of asset classes, market trends, challenges, management techniques, and success stories. Listen to informative discussions with valuable tips that will serve as the foundation for your incredible real estate venture. Now, here's your host, Shannon Robnett. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of The Real Estate Breakdown. In this episode, Justin Smith and I sit down and talk about how to overcome adversity in an incredibly expensive project. Hmm. I wonder what that can be. What ideas for how to overcome these challenges, access to resources, and how they can find their answers on their own stories? These are the kind of difficulties that we're going to talk about, Justin and I. And in this episode, we're going to talk about timeless principles in real estate. We're going to talk about why real estate is such an important piece of company growth, why key market metrics are needed to start on your real estate journey, and which market metrics are important. So with that, I'm going to introduce my guest, Justin Smith. Justin, thanks for being with us, man. I'm excited to be here, and thank you for having me. So, I mean, you've kind of got us thinking here, but if our opening tagline is how to overcome adversity in incredibly expensive projects. What do you got in mind? I mean, how do you do that when you when you have problems and everything's already expensive, like the market we're in? Yeah, it's uh, it was already a challenging business, right? So uh, what I found was time. The further you can look out in the future and the better you can account for that, that you can maneuver around it, that you can adjust and then uh, team and capabilities. So the higher level people that you play with, the more unique abilities and capabilities you can bring to the table to overcome some challenges when it comes to cost and just like a complexity of projects. So uh, I've really tried to think through with clients, how can we put the pieces together as soon as possible, recognizing we've got to make adjustments, but just have the plan together and uh, That way we can make some of the adjustments early when they're less costly. So when you're looking at how to help clients look into the future, how do you help them deal with things like the last 18 months, right? I mean, because I know, I know in your handbook of how to help your client, there was the pandemic tab right there, right? So you knew just, you just flip to the pandemic tab, go through the list, right? It was pretty simple. I mean, how do you really help people deal with something like this? The pandemic was a a wild experience with rent relief, right? That was the first challenge that everybody dealt with. Can you pay the rent? Can you keep going on as you are? And if you can't, what can you do about it? And then helping clients figure out who is the client that needs that and who has to have that or else something catastrophic happens. And so that was very interesting to help clients and to help guide them, but also to know who really is in need and then to communicate that to landlords. So that was something that uh, none of us had ever done, right? And imagine a 100,000 square foot warehouse and going to your landlord with your hat in hand and saying, hey, can you can you help me out here for a little right. bit? Like that's not, uh, that's not how 
these conversations usually come together. So that was very challenging. And then for landlords, didn't have to give any relief. And uh, those who did had to figure out why should they, what's in it for them, and how are they made whole? And how does that really provide meaningful relief? So uh, that was something that I wish I had known all that going in, right? Nobody did. So that was like March, April, May. That was the theme of the quarter to figure that out. And uh, what I was so shocked to find out is, A, most didn't really need it. B, those who asked for it generally were denied. And C, the only ones that really got it were ones that were either mom and pop or that weren't really industrial. They were like, uh, think of like retail properties where if your restaurant went out, you wouldn't have a line of restaurants out the door looking to get in. So maybe it's okay to let them float for a little while. And then for those few that did get some kind of relief, at what cost and finding out that really landlords look at it as a loan, right? They have their own fiduciary obligations. So what interest rate do you attach to that? That's, you know, and uh, right. you wouldn't feel like any interest is uh, something you sh- should be paying if you are coming, you know, in search of relief. And in six months, are you really like uh, to the point where you could then have a balloon payment plus interest, right? Can you see that when you're in the depth of the hole of despair where you're, you're coming to your landlord looking for help? So all of that was uh, very interesting to go through. And what I found is most just made tough decisions between labor and with their own contracts, with their own customers, and with their own capital. But pretty much everybody just hung in there, didn't get any relief, and just found a way to make it happen. You know, and that's what, I mean, I remember having the conversations, you know, when you talk about, you know, April, May of last year, having the conversations with some realtors that had been involved with a lot of credit tenants, you know, and even the credit tenants, you know, uh, were coming to the landlord saying, Hey, we need some help, you know? And the reality was, wait a minute, didn't we negotiate a better rate for you because you're a credit tenant? And now you're saying that you need some relief, you know, where do we go with this? And I remember everybody kind of wrestling with that because it was such an unknown. And I don't even think now, Justin, that we have a real grasp on what the effects have been. What we do know is the economy is stabilized, right? We understand that, you know, people are back to making cabinets and people are back to making light bulbs and people are back to, you know, processing frozen food, all of those kinds of uses that go into these places. But we still don't know exactly the, you know, are we going into another lockdown? Are we, are we seeing this? And, you know, those are some pretty big things that landlords have to process. What do you think your landlord's mindset is at this point, when you talk about having them deal with the overcoming adversity, how do you think their mindset is going into this second lockdown after having seen everybody pull together and just do it? What do you think their mindset is now? Yeah. In industrial, we've seen so much demand, right? Since that moment, right? So we had that moment of despair. Then we had a pause where we're all waiting to listen for signs of life. And then there was a rocket ship of demand. And so if you are a landlord and you see this tidal wave of demand, that's primarily e-commerce and third-party logistics related, but not exclusive. And 
you're finding that building buildings is still taking a while and getting through cities isn't getting any easier. I have found the majority of them are very bullish and have over this past year become even more bullish. And uh, yeah, I don't think they look at it as an opportunity to trade up to a better tenant per se of, you know, a tenant that can't, can't make it happen in the last year and try and replace them. But I have found when tenants go out or when they say, hey, I'd like to get out of my space early because I'm moving to Texas or because I'm doing something different, rather than having those, sorry, that's on you. You go sublease it. And when you want to, you find the right match, let us know and we'll see if we can approve that. Those conversations have changed where it's, we'll help you. We'll yeah. market the space yeah. for you. And when we find someone, we'll let you know when you get out. And uh, that's not to say it's without a cost, like a termination fee uh, for the time and the effort and the legal and the resources to market the space and contract for a new tenant. But because they're so bullish and because the demand really is there, it's, uh, that's the mindset of the landlord right yeah. now. If you've got to go, we're not happy to see you go, but there's opportunity there. And if you know, that's what you want. And we can access uh, opportunity that can take thin margins. And that can be all of a sudden a boost where you were trying to underwrite a boost in rents in year three, and you get it in month three, you're a happy camper for that. Right. You know, and, and so, so we've talked about, you know, the adversity that always comes, right? I mean, there's always something, I mean, there's, you know, we've, we've just always dealt with that. Yeah. But you talk about you talk about the timeless principles of real estate. What are some of the timeless principles that regardless of the fact that we know that adversity is a timeless principle, right? I mean, yeah. I don't know that it's a principle, but it's a timeless factor of real estate. What are some of the principles that you find are just timeless in real estate and always work regardless of the market? Yeah. I generally think of like the fit, right? When you think of industrial, industrial buildings are only as good as they provide a utility for the company that's using them right? So if you can drill down into how do we make the most of the fit that we have, and sometimes that's efficiency, right? But sometimes that's uh, new investments. And so uh, focusing on fit and operations, I feel like that is a great, it's timeless, but it's great because the timelessness of it is you can always go back to it and it can always yield more improvements. So even if the market's more expensive, even if you wish you had more space, you can always think through how do I make better use of the space? So I generally will focus on that and focus with internal teams. So if you've got the CEO with their CFO, COO, their operations manager, their facilities managers, their general managers, and then uh, try and mesh them with the best talent for people that specialize in operations. So Usually for industrial, that's warehouse, uh, that's material handling and warehouse automation. And so I, I found uh, focusing there is, it's always a part of any assignment we work on, because if you can go higher, if you can rack closer, if you can have machines make people's jobs easier or faster or less risky, and you can increase the throughput of the building, or the way in which you manufacture and the speed with which you manufacture, I find that's, um, yeah, it's so awesome when you're able to help clients there. And for us, uh, we're real estate guys. So usually right. we're focused on 
low cost, right? Everybody always wants a deal. Everybody yeah. always wants to be in the best area or location or in the best building with the best features. But I found uh, so much can be done with the operations. That's usually a great place that we can focus on when you're in a very challenging environment. You know, and haven't you seen lately that everybody, you know, three, four years ago was focused on the right deal, but now they're focused on right now. What have you got available right now? You know, just because there's so much demand, right? But what are some of the key market metrics that you need to have so that you know that somewhere between right now and the right fit can still be had in, in, in what you're doing? Yeah, metrics. Uh, it's interesting to think about what's most important. And usually uh, before I even delve into the market, I start with time and just what time do you have left on your contract? What time do you have left on the building that you think you want until it's built? How much time do you have to put the next uh, building together for your business? And so uh, I always start just with time because I've found, especially with construction, permits, delays, uh, lumber, material, labor, all of that. Yeah, time just goes by the wayside so fast. So before I even delve into any uh, market metrics, I definitely start with time. And then that gives me the lens to then look at the market. And I found their uh, positive net absorption and uh, absorption figures and amount of inventory. It's huge to know, like um, you may be in a city, we'll use Southern California as an example, and you think uh, positive absorption is off the charts. There's no way you'll be able to negotiate terms and you know really like work a tenant-friendly deal. But uh, in certain size ranges, like uh, flex space, I'm in Irvine. We've got a ton of R&D in flex space. That's a totally different market. So if you can drill down into what's the absorption in flex space, then you can really know how much inventory you got. And sometimes that can be a great way to take a measuring stick to figure out how much of a landlord's market is it really. And uh, I feel like being a broker in the market on the daily, it's something that I rely on slightly less just because I feel like this is all we do all day long. We feel the sentiment everywhere right? and uh, we see as it shifts, but that's usually the first thing I'll look at is just let's look at... Uh, how supply and demand are balancing out. And then look at that quarter by quarter and go back a couple of different quarters and look at deliveries and go back a couple of quarters. And usually you get a handle on a market pretty quick after that. So why do you focus on industrial? I mean, and specifically why warehouses? I mean, that seems to be your bread and butter, but why is that so, it sounds so uninteresting. Boring industrial was boring until 2020 when it magically became sexy and interesting for everybody and their mothers and Wall Street, right? right. Real estate. Most people get in because their family sucked them in somehow. And then whoever sucks you in, whatever they're doing is usually how you start. And so for me, it was my sister and the team here that was doing industrial. So not that it was like predestined, but it, that was uh, the, the cards I was dealt and that I played. And then over the years, I still appreciate learning more asset classes that are close to. So like with Flex and R&D is one, you'll find a lot of brokers that are in industrial, they'll know office very well because any company you work with will have a headquarters office. 
and we'll have a manufacturing building and a distribution building. And so it's common to work on some office assignments. Hmm. And over the years, I've been fortunate enough to take that and roll it into medical office and start to learn that world a bit. But uh, I'd say those are just like offshoots or little paths that different opportunities have taken me to that I've learned over the years. But I found it's most fun to stick with your asset class and your specialty. And I've been fortunate enough to have a couple clients where I do their tenant rep work across the country. So I've worked in 12 different states. And it's amazing when you drop into Charlotte and you really drill into what's Charlotte all about or Tampa or San Antonio or Columbus or Chicago or Phoenix and to start to see the different dynamic in each market, the different constraints, the different players. I feel like that makes you more able to help your client and makes you just a more well-rounded player in the space. So I've really appreciated going deep into industrial and uh, locally that's even uh, going from Orange County into LA County or into the Inland Empire or having the assignments in San Diego that I'll work with our friends down there. That part's been uh, wonderful. So now I feel like I've invested so heavily in industrial. I would, it's, uh, this is our business. This is what we know. And you still working with your sister? I'm sorry. Are you still working with your sister? I'm not, but uh, not because uh, me and her aren't working together in the sense, but she was a 1031 exchange accommodator. Okay. Okay. And before she became a stay-at-home mom of four boys. Oh, man. So, she probably, uh, she probably r- wishes those easy days of 1031 exchange were back for her. <laughs> yeah. And so if you are an accommodator, who are your clients? Brokers, primarily right. brokers and principals. Right. So she knew every broker in the world, right as I little brother was getting out of undergrad. Okay. And uh, yeah, she gave me uh, so many contacts and connections and it, it was a pretty cool way to get started. Awesome. So why do you feel that real estate is such an important piece of a company's growth? Oh man, it's huge. When you think of, uh, on one hand, uh, you got the upside and the downside. So upside is uh, potential, right? So where do you have room to grow? I think of it as first of the people and the space you go to work to every day, right? You got to be excited about who you're working with and where you're going. And then when you are out of space, how fun is that, right? When you think of uh, two people in an office, a 10th person in the bullpen, in the warehouse, it's taking pallets that are in between you and where you're trying to take inventory and moving them out to the yard and just generally schlepping things back and forth needlessly. Right. So, uh, Yeah, just uh, when you have a lack of it or a scarcity of it and what you experience as a result is also, uh, it's just uh, makes for a bad working environment. But I sure love when people have a client contract they've won, they've got a good team and a great culture where everybody's excited and they're doing great things. And then we can envision, what can we do with that? How can we capitalize on this? Where is there opportunity for us if we expand that? I feel like That's the fun stuff. And to be able to play a role in that and then help execute on that and then to watch it happen for years and years at a time, that part's, uh, that's always super exciting. You know, when you talk about a good team and a good culture, I mean, why is that so necessary when you're in real estate? I mean, isn't real estate really just transactional? I mean, I can get warehouse from anybody. 
I don't, why, I mean, explain that culture that you, or that teamwork and that camaraderie that you need in, or that you feel you need in, in industrial. I generally look at it as you are entering into someone's organization, right? So they've got all their key players and they have their own company culture. They have their own challenges and they're trying to execute on something. And you as a broker, you've got to, the music stops, you enter the room, right? And you've got to assess who is everybody? What is everyone's strong suits? What are people concerned about? And so I feel like, uh, that's the biggest part is uh, obviously we want to have a great culture within our own internal team, but I generally find being very sensitive and very just perceptive and aware of the team that you're working with and how you can complement them and how you can make the most of what they have. So it is interesting to go into different companies and recognize different working environments and different cultures and then saying, okay, I got it. I see this is kind of what we're working with here here's how I can help. And so that part's always been, uh, I have one client where it's such a breath of fresh air. Everyone you work with in their team, you can tell it's, um, you get a little bit of the hospitality, you get the humbleness, you get the can-do attitude. And I found with them and their culture, literally everyone in the firm, this is their firm. And so uh, it's made it into the best working relationship where you know they're going to follow through. You don't have to, you've built up enough trust along the way where it really allows you an opportunity to then invest everything you got to try and make sure they have a great outcome and to do the best. You feel like even much more responsibility to really perform and help do everything that's within your power to make for success. So sure. I've found uh, recognizing that and uh, being able to mesh with it is probably the most powerful part. So Justin, you know, obviously in the last five or seven years, real estate has made a resurgence back to, like you said before, being sexy again. How do you feel, you know, if multifamily is kind of like everybody wants multifamily, why would someone pick industrial or why should someone look at industrial over multifamily uh, being the golden child right now? Yeah. Oh, on one hand is like working within firms and brokerage and investors that invest there. And then secondly, I think of like, okay, let's say Shannon and I had a 10 million bucks or a hundred million bucks. Why would we invest it in industrial? And so there's a bunch of different subcategories within industrial. So it really depends on where you can find attractive part of the market. One of my favorites is the multi-tenant or small bay space. That's probably what's most similar to multifamily. Mm -hmm. And so what I appreciate about that is in terms of uh, renovations, amenities, and dealing with families and the things that happen with personal relationships with like death, divorce, with uh, kids and with schools, with multifamily, I feel like there's a lot more like um, the amenity wars, right? Where that was like, who's got the pool and how big's right. the pool? And, you know, my windows are 10 foot tall, yours are nine foot tall, you know, uh, <laughs> right. trying to really like over amenitize projects. Like in industrial, that's, uh, that's not a concern. That's not really how the, that asset class works. And so what I appreciate about multi-tenant industrial is 
you're dealing with small and medium-sized businesses. A lot of them are service-based businesses and they're local. So if they work in a territory, think like your serve pro, your house floods and you call the flood guy to come in and uh, help you out. They have a certain territory. They're going to be there for a long period of time. They don't need all of these expensive amenities and they don't go through like uh, reasons why they have to terminate or move out of the state or move for a job. So I found that it makes for very sticky tenants. And so a lot of it is about having space that is great environment for people to go to work and making sure that it's very functional. But otherwise, you get out of a lot of, and I don't mean to poo-poo on uh, multifamily because it's great in its own regards, but just when you compare the two and contrast them a little bit, what I had found was... um, starting to get out of dealing with people's personal situations and getting into dealing with businesses. They make different decisions for different reasons. And uh, I just, I really appreciated that the deeper that I got into it. And so for I, I have uh, invested in a couple multi-tenant industrial properties and uh, that would be like the trajectory going forward would be to continue to replicate that and to look for people like yourself to partner up with, to explore. Well, and you know, that's what we saw, you know, in 2008, nine, I mean, we had people all over the nation losing their home, right? But in our multi-tenant industrial space, we had one vacancy for like 27 days. I mean, we did not have vacancy because people understood that, look, I might lose my house. I can go rent this place across the street, but I can't lose my business. I've got a janitorial company or I've got a I've got a cabinet shop or I've got, you know, a machine shop or or, or transmission repair company or whatever it is. I need to stay in business. And so we saw very often where the choice was to keep the business going and let the real estate, let the personal real estate go. But, you know, Justin, you have talked about quite a few things here and and there's a lot of gems in what we've been talking about, but I got a feeling that there's more. In fact, I think that you actually wrote a book about industrial. I mean, tell us what prompted you to dive in and and spell all this out in a book. Yeah. How many real estate guys in industrial are writing books these days, right? Right. Yeah. Not so many, maybe one. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe there's number two out there somewhere. For me, I have been blessed by a strategic coach and participating in their group for 10 years. And uh, that's an entrepreneurial coaching program. And so I found through there, I'm able to connect with a lot of people like you that have been in the game for a long time, that have had success, that have systems and have talented teams. So uh, it's through there that every quarter we get together and we brainstorm new ideas. And so here was one of my strategic coach sessions where they were starting to collaborate more with Scribe Media, which is Tucker Max's book writing company. And I felt like it meshed right when I had hit a maturity level in the business or a confidence level where I felt like I know this like the back of my hand. I have enough here where I can call it for knowledge and for gems and the most useful information. And so I'm thankful that Strategic Coach put me in touch with Scribe, that it was at the right place in the right time. And with Scribe, they helped you mentally figure out how are you going to do this, right? And so it's in the how where 
you or I ordinarily would never think, how am I going to do, how am I going to write a book? What's that going to look like? And uh, yeah, they really lay it out so that if you want it written for you, but all coming from you and your knowledge and your interviews, you can. If you want to write the whole thing and you just want them to get it on Amazon, you can do that too. And what I went for was they help you with your framing out. Everything is you and putting it together an hour a day for 90 days in a row. And then it's you and the editor really starting to churn through what's gold and what's silver. And so I'm just thankful for them to help. I needed a framework, right? So they had it all laid out. And that part was, uh, I love it because it's opened up so many doors, not in just helping clients and uh, friends of friends, but people that have come out and said, uh, I read your stuff. You didn't know me, but here's what I'm working on that's exciting. Let's uh, see if there's opportunity there. And so it's pretty cool to be able to put your value out there and not feel like you have to guard it and protect it and keep it from the world, but to get it all out there and see who it resonates with. So what's the name of your book? Uh, It's Industrial Intelligence, and it came out in April. And then uh, also on uh, Audible and uh, Audiobook for those that uh, like to listen to it. And uh, I had to choose. Do you narrate it on your own or do you hire, you know, it's not like Liam Neeson's going to be the voice for my book, right? So I had to decide, like, who's that going to be? And uh, I felt I really love when people narrate their own. Like you really, it's an opportunity. Like uh, I think of when I read books to my kids at night, you could just read the words on the page or you can like, you're acting this book out and you're really like living every word. So uh, I chose to do that. And uh, that's what I mean, I'd recommend any of them to people, but I feel like that's such a great medium. And I'm really appreciative of having the opportunity to put that out there. Awesome. Well, where can people find the book? I mean, you you mentioned Audible, but where can we buy it? I'm a hard copy kind of guy. Where can I get a book? Yeah, you will get one in the mail from me, I would imagine, in uh, 24 hours. But uh, Amazon and uh, anywhere books are sold, really. Yeah, you may not find it on the shelf at Barnes & Noble, right, when you're taking... I don't know where Barnes & Noble is anymore. So, I, you know, we kind of gave that up. We all... I think we everybody orders online anymore, but that's phenomenal. Yeah. So where else can we find you, find the information you're putting out, find the content, be able to follow you? How can my listeners connect with you? Yeah, smithcre.com is my website for my team. And uh, you can get a great handle on what services do we offer and how does it help people? But I found uh, most want to connect on uh, LinkedIn. So Justin Smith and Lee and Associates. And uh, I'm a contributing author at LoopNet, where we'll put out articles all over the place on how to invest in industrial, what tenants need to know, and all that ends up on LinkedIn. So that's a great place to connect and then just start to see some more lessons and content and stories and battle stories and done deals and availabilities and see all that come out. Awesome. Well, thanks for being with us today, Justin. And thank you, everyone, for tuning into the Real Estate Rundown. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the Real Estate Rundown on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts to get your automatic updates. You'll also find us on Instagram and YouTube and on LinkedIn with Justin. And I'd love to hear your feedback. So drop us a line. And Justin, thank you so much again for stopping by the Real Estate Rundown. Thank you for having me. That's a wrap for today's episode of The Real Estate Rundown. 
Let these newfound strategies pave the way to start a successful career or a profound rebranding. If you loved everything you have heard, listen to more conversations at www.shannonrobnet.com. And be sure to leave a rating, share it with your friends, and subscribe. Until the next episode.